Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. How to Future. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by futurist and author Scott Smith. How to Future, leading in sense-making in an age of hyperchange, was co-authored with Madeline Ashby and published in September of 2020. I was introduced to Scott's work by friend and podcast guest Nick Scapatici. Scott is a founder and managing partner of Changest, a futures research and consulting partnership. He's consulted to a range of global institutions and has engagements with some of the largest and most respected global financial retail telecoms technology and media brands such as the bbc the new york times and comcast scott has designed and delivered futures projects talks and workshops in over a dozen countries and facilitated projects and workshops in multiple languages scott helped create and lead the strategic foresight program for dubai future academy and lectures in the Innovation and Future Thinking Program at IED Barcelona, a course he designed. He was also recently named to the Executive Board of the Center of the Future Studies at the University of Dubai. Scott and I dig into how thinking about the future is a process that makes sense of new territory, and that considering future is not about predicting, it's much more about the present and eliciting concepts and assumptions about what's going on. Scott describes why getting operating assumptions on the table is important when approaching the future and why future is hard for many leaders to address. We explore why working on the future is not a linear process, and I appreciated Scott's perspective, hoping that a client isn't seeing daily project progress as much as they're seeing increasing resolution. Scott also emphasizes why humility is an incredibly important ingredient as we collaborate about the future. It was a pleasure having Scott on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Scott, thanks so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you join me. If you don't mind, uh, for the guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Wow, that's hard to put in a capsule. Um, so I am a uh, I'm a, a working practicing futurist, um, which means uh, I go to work every day. Uh, it's basically from the time I open my eyes till uh, I pass out at night, um, working with organizations, team members, um, uh, all kinds of entities, helping them make sense of what's in front of us, um, and that has a very wide and ambiguous definition. Um, I've been working in the tech forecasting and kind of general strategy fields for about 24 years now. Um, And I come from a kind of uh, mongrel uh, humanities uh, educational background um, and uh, was a a language person and uh, a culture person when I was going through my studies. And so somehow I've ended up here. 
Right on. Thank you. And uh, I want to, I know I want to dig into some of the elements of your, your latest book, uh, How to Future, uh, Leading and Sense-Making in an Age of Hyper-Change. So I really appreciate the book. So this will, this may sound like a weird question. Uh, but why did you decide to sit down and write write a book? Uh, to me, uh, authoring a book seems really daunting. So uh, given all that's on your plate, uh, what compelled you to uh, write about how to future? I think first and foremost, it's a really short thought, and that's just get it down on paper. Um, if you if you've read the book, and I think in the um, in the intro, I talk about having sort of going backwards. Uh, kind of going about this in reverse, most people kind of write a book, if you're sort of a professional consultant, or, um, you know, working with other people, you'll write your kind of idea book first, and then milk it for a decade. Um, We sort of did the the hard graft, the hard work for about a decade, and then realized that we needed to sort of write, put some conjunctions in between some of the things and and kind of write the the tendon and connective tissue. But just write it down. it came from about 10 years of teaching and really 15 or 20 years of, of working on the ground with all kinds of companies, organizations, governments, small, tiny charities and community groups, all the way up to international organizations. And um, we really just wanted to kind of lock in what we had learned and what our thoughts were and what we'd understood from actually doing this on the ground versus kind of only writing a theoretical, um, you know, abstract about the methodologies of this practice. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and uh, from the book too, I, I really do appreciate the the practical kind of exercises and approaches that you have, uh, especially in in mapping uh, and getting basically getting to a collaborative visual language quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I found that incredibly incredibly helpful. Uh, want to want to ask step back though a little bit in uh, you had talked about having kind of a, a varied humanities background how how did you become a futurist or where did you decide that's kind of where your interest or passion lies it's it's kind of a, a loop in a weird way um, I think I didn't realize until many years later that I had always been thinking about doing this, but it it, it was a kind of um, a moment in time where I kind of happened to step sideways between two careers. I sort of found my 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 kind of groove um, from having worked as a as a more kind of short term strategic forecaster, but um, I realized kind of years later, as I said before, I studied languages. Um, and culture and uh, all what I was doing all of that time was kind of making sense of, of new territory and finding ways to translate the sense that I was making to other people. I actually worked, I, I was training as a translator originally and kind of took a strange left turn because my last, one of my last projects was on um, an emerging interactive technology that was being developed in France in the early 19, late 80s, early 90s when I was finishing up in university. And um, that's a whole other side story. But what I was doing was consuming and learning about new things and new places, and then relaying that understanding to other people. And most of our practice today really kind of looks at the future, quote unquote, as a kind of terrain, um, not there to be kind of occupied or colonized, but to be understood and to be mapped 
to the best you know possibility at any given moment and then to be navigated so i think in the end i was always headed in this direction um just through a kind of disciplinary maze of getting here thank thank you i and uh i'm not sure if there's overlap i might be projecting here but you know i started off my uh, higher ed journey, I wasn't sure if I was going to be an orthodontist or a filmmaker. So I was a double major in, uh, in broadcasting film and pre-dentistry. But I found through the communication discipline, I got really interested in how groups of people basically make sense of the world, kind of meaning, yeah. understanding, and how um, meaning, motive, and identity can chain out through groups and through cultures. And then that that led me into a path working more with teams and, and technology. Mm -hmm. So I, I appreciate you too, like, you know, mentioning the language component because I, I find myself going down deep dives sometimes almost philosophically about language of stru structure and almost a structuration pattern of mm -hmm. the words we use might enable, but also disable certain futures, right. In the, in the way that we, we look at things, and so you're uh, with your work. To one of the things, uh, I guess two two things I'll throw out. See where you, where you want to go, and <laughs> and also just let me know if I'm right or wrong on on this. One is when I was reading your book, um, I was struck by, and it, this is ham fisted, but kind of the general the Kierkegaard quote about like uh, life is lived forward but understood backwards about the the challenge of. The future. So I want to I want to dig into your your experience mm -hmm. there, and then also uh, from a language and from what we hold dear, uh, maybe some of the things that when you're working with with experts, uh, what they might have to give up. Right? They've built their identity on being an expert to date, but the future might might render that uh, that currency uh, in uh, you know kind of worthless. I'm painting mm -hmm. with really broad strokes, but. Just curious if either of those are provocative uh, areas that you might want to talk about. Absolutely, and I think I mean, this is um, I'll, I'll mangle it. There's an, uh, Ian Sinclair is a is a guy at, at SRI a research group. I think he had a quote that like all of our all of our information, all of our history is about the past, but all of our decisions are about the future. And so you know we're perpetually lacking the data. Everything we have to work from is an analog. And, you know, we're kind of another model, a parallel model that you have to sort of use to the to best fit. And I think one of the things that's most misunderstood about this, this kind of practice of looking forward in whatever sort of shape or form or, or method you're taking is that it's, I think most people think that it's about being, being right, like guessing the right thing, making the right forecast or, you know, heaven forbid, predicting what the future is going to be. And um, it took me a while working in this field to really kind of digest and understand what, what was actually going on. And it's much more about, it's much more about the present, first of all, but it's also about um, uh, bringing kind of um, eliciting and then somehow kind of synchronizing different people's concepts, understandings, and assumptions about what's going on. Because when, you know, you can't really go forward until you've managed to get everybody's, you know, kind of uh, operating assumptions out on the table. And so even, you know, the classic scenario planning that people are familiar with that came out of um, Rand and Shell in the 1960s and 70s was as much about um, surfacing disagreement 
about what's actually happening and where we might go forward as it was about then modeling what those forwards look like and, and sort of potentiality. So there's a big element of this that is, it's a, a social act. Um, it's an act of ongoing communication and sense making communication kind of iterating uh, as you go forward and really sort of working with a group of people to find your collective way forward based on their um, set of knowledge and understanding as well as what you can bring to the table through experience and experience with other groups like them, whoever they may be. And so it's, it's an, it, you know, I think once you kind of understand that the, um, the practice and approaches and tools and different ways of kind of doing things begin to have a bit more power, but also it allows you to, or creates the complexity of having to kind of choose different sets of tools and approaches and conversations and frameworks with every new question and every new group that's doing the exploring. That may sound a bit kind of, you know, fluffy and hand wavy, but in reality, that's what a lot of it comes down to <clears throat> is, and it comes back to the kind of cultural translation and, you know, big doses of anthropology and kind of understanding what's really going on around you so that you can sort of diagnose that and then point people in a particular frame to, to, to look forward. Thank you. Uh, one of the things I was feeling when I was reading your book, too, is when we think about the future um, and and almost different timescales about like sometimes like, you know, like the notion of uh, we were promised jetpacks, right? Like, <laughs> or when I was growing up, I thought uh, the, the entire uh, United States was going to be interconnected by high speed rail at this point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then there's other things that that are just upon it. And I feel like uh, uh, in Monty Python's The Holy Grail, when they, they're storming the castle where the sea, it just seems like it's far away, it's far away. It's, and then all of a sudden it's on, <laughs> on top of us. Sometimes I feel like it's it's hard to even understand some timescales individually. And then also I'm curious on the cultural aspect about timescales do... Um, this might this might be just a pedestrian question, but do do older cultures have more of a sense of uh, less reactive to immediate events? Where I feel like maybe maybe the U.S. as a culture where we're a lot younger than maybe Europe, and so yeah, yeah, do we I mean, see things on different timescales. Yeah, a lot of that comes into play. I think you know, in the uh, on the first kind of half of that, the you know, it's what what foresight people would call images of the future, the idea that you that you had a particular image of the future that you thought would, you know, or hoped. And, you know, the difference between thinking and hoping is often kind of ambiguous here. But, right. you know, that's what you were looking forward to. You thought that was cool. Or, um, you know, now we've got a lot of dystopian images that people really want to avoid. So um, there, there are these, you know, these kind of composite um you know, illustrations almost of what the future is supposed to bring that um, is heavily informed by things like media, you know, what we read, what we like, what we don't like. Um, there's often the difficulty of people clinging too tightly to their specific kind of fan futures. They're, you know, the thing that they really want to have happen. Um, and that, that kind of litters the landscape of futures work in particular, because it's difficult to tell who is who is um, starting from a kind of blank slate, you know, kind of clean piece of paper to help you work something out versus who's kind of bringing the the preset 
of a particular future in, and then, you know, you and they trying to kind of make it happen. And, you know, those are two very different activities. One's very generative and the other one is kind of deductive, you know, and, and working from an image to you. Um, so, you know, those are often kind of big things we have to wrestle with. And then, um, yeah, the expectations, the timescales, um, timescales can be something, in fact, you know, when we teach and I'm running a workshop right now for uh, an incredible organization that, you know, does amazing things, but sometimes just giving people the opportunity to step back and go, actually, you know what, they're working on this timescale, I'm working on this timescale, so I'm, it's like you're playing different pianos at different tempos. And nobody's really recognizing that the music is running at different speeds. You know, the the pace of change is running at different speeds. Um, the the determinants of speed are shifting. So just to give you a really, you know, day-to-day -day example, and I used to use this as a kind of an illustration in class. We would say that something like, you know, consumer electronics, the sort of the future was three years or so. Um, uh, automotive, probably a, you know, seven to ten to replace a platform uh, and to kind of wholly develop new drivetrains and powertrains and everything. And pharmaceuticals, like twenty years. You've got to do all the R and D, all the research. Then you've got to do the testing, and then you've got to go through the regulatory regimes. And so, you know, pharma, you're looking at 15, 20 years payback on a on a um, you know major new sort of investment. Well, now we're seeing you know mRNA vaccines developed in under a year, hustled through the most bare bones regulatory you know um, absolute base baseline. What do we need? Get them into the field and get them working. And so suddenly that's going to have a long-term impact on kind of the clock speed of pharmaceuticals. So the pharmaceutical future is about to accelerate, or it actually is accelerating right now. Um, and so you have to kind of track those things uh, as well as the kind of cultural clocks that run fast and slow. Um, I talk a little bit in the book about polychronic and monochronic cultures. Um, you know, those that sort of can let multiple things happen at the same time and not really track any one of them. There's sort of always, a, you know, tomorrow and tomorrow. And then there are other cultures. The U.S. is one of them, you know, where it's like, what's an outlook right now? What, you know, what does Trello tell me? And what time does the train get here if we even have trains? Um, the, things are kind of like incremental linear progress. And so all of those things are really good to begin to understand when you start kind of stepping into these questions and then being able to, to step away from it, to free yourself from the constraints of particular time. It starts to sound really weird now, but, you know, it's kind of like if you're working on a project inside a company, you, you have to be able to step out of the forecast, um, the sales goals, the you know, all of those things and kind of step far enough back that you can kind of look at all of it in perspective and not be bound by the time of the thing you're working with. Thanks. So I, 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 <laughs> I, yeah. mean, I tell my students sometimes it's like stepping out of a film while it's running and looking right. at it from the side. And you, uh, I, I love that about the changing perspective and, um, and I know in the book too, you also, uh, you know, you're talking about zooming in and zooming out. Right. And, yeah. and, and, and our ability to do that. It's interesting. Cause I, um, uh, I teach an innovation class at the University of Iowa. And uh, are you familiar with uh, 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 Damian Newman's Design Squiggle? No. 
So, uh, or, or maybe I don't know what it. <laughs> yeah, the, the 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 rough story is it's it's imagine you know reading left to right, but the squiggle is really it's going back on itself and ultimately right right, right. then becomes a a, a clean line uh, and the the story it might be apocryphal, but uh, his his firm was asked to in an RFP you have to submit your design process and he just simply drew this messy squiggle and I bless him. <laughs> I've shown that to my students though. It's like when you're in, we zoom in, when you're in it, it feels like it's really messy and it feels like you're going, you might even be, you know, backtracking. But then as you zoom out, you can see this clear pattern that yes, over time, it, the, the signal basically becomes pretty clear, right? And it's just yeah. one of those things too, to zoom in and zoom out as a reminder for, for different perspectives. But that I appreciated that too, in your, um, in your book, just referring to kind of uh, the notion of of zoom, um, so yeah, the the squiggle for me uh, is was more just reminders for my students to zoom in and zoom out. And sure, what I appreciate about your work because mine was less about um, kind of the time scale; it was just more what what is really going on. But also on the consulting side, it's also I use that to kind of inoculate up front yeah. because letting yeah. the clients. Is when we start to dig in the problem, you know, you had assumptions about what the problem might be, but it turns out it might be something else, and we have to be open to. Yeah, I, I'm just designing a, a a kind of system for that, and we're about to start another project where I'm kind of onboarding a couple of new people, and going through the explanation that this is not a linear process. We don't find you know several A's and then put them together, and then we go to B and then C. And kind of build your way up you're actually working you know inductive and deductive you're working um you know macro and micro and and that's number one okay with me number two because i'm running the project and so yeah. everybody should feel comfortable kind of moving around number two you know that needs to be clear to the client as well so they can't just look in every day and see progress they need to sort of look in every day and see hopefully gradual resolution from low fidelity to high fidelity but you're really kind of, you know, it's like the old school TVs where you were kind of tuning the vertical and the horizontal and, and holding the rabbit ears and trying to get the UHF <laughs> channel in. It is about tuning a signal or a set of signals and getting them, you know, into a place where they make sense. You don't write a, you know, a piece of music by just starting at the beginning and kind of generating the notes all the way through to the end you write chunks and you attach them together and you may flip the song around and all those sorts of things so i i think it's always important both for the yeah i mean the squiggle is a great way of kind of communicating to the client you know don't expect this to go by stage gates you know one two three four or five and product out the other end um we may diverge and we may converge but we also may diverge again <laughs> So, yeah, a, a couple things there too, because you you know you were talking about uh, um, uh, deductive and inductive, and do you play around with the abductive space at all with clients? Um, I was kind of. I think in, you know, in the end, we play around with just about everything yeah. that helps us get to to something new. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that's I was I was just thinking uh, to some of like. Uh, when we're playing in the abductive space uh, from a design thinking perspective too. And that for me, that has its roots going back to C.S. Pierce and, and still going back to kind of cultural an anthropology elements. Uh, one, of, one of the things too, is you were talking about noise 
and almost like how do we improve a signal to noise ratio is the way I'm hearing that. So uh, yeah. just kind of throwing my mental model on the table. Um, and another thing with some of some of the mapping and some of the work that that you describe and how to future, you also you talk about weak signals and then you talk mm -hmm. about uh, trends and drivers. Do, do you mind just kind of uh, quickly like explaining kind of that relationship to like or, or the difference between a trend and a driver? Sure. I mean, it goes back. So the, the the two kind of terms you're using here, one is driving force or driver. Those are often kind of used interchangeably depending on who's who's talking. Yeah. Um, but they tend to be sort of large macro forces that have a shaping um, sort of shaping force on um, events and kind of dynamics. Uh, and so you can think of something like demography moves very slowly um, unfolds and kind of unfurls typically, you know, over decadal, multi-decadal kind of timeframes. Um, you know, we we know how much to set aside now for the retirees in 50 years because we can look at population patterns. So, um, you know, it's kind of like what goes in the pipe is largely going to come out the pipe um, in, in some form. So, or, you know, uh, big political systems or climate. Um so those I tend to kind of think of those in terms of both time and force. They're very kind of slow moving glacial change trends um, in the sense that we work with them are not um, kind of what's in for spring summer 21, but uh, they are things that ha have a they are a, a, um, a direction of change in a phenomenon that has uh, a kind of it's not really technical, but sometimes it helps to have a kind of time series of data or evidence behind it. In other words, you can see a progression of several different examples of something happening and say that is a trend in a particular direction. Um, they tend to have directionality, but also they tend to be things that you could probably shift or alter in, through some force. So um, think of trends as being, you know, one to two to five year or two to 10 year kind of time horizon. Signals are, and weak signals are kind of a couple of flavors of the same thing. Um, they are the sort of individual points of evidence, the pings, the, 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 um, the I hate to say data points, because I always, I want to kind of make clear that we're not talking about quantitative data. Right. But, you know, but signals are, are the kind of, the, the things, the phenomena, the incidents that go to make up a trend. So the examples, the evidence points. Uh, a weak signal is a kind of almost um, a, a new ping that might represent a different direction, you know, perhaps counterfactual. So an aberration or a change in direction or a modification of something we assume to be true. And we see weak signals out there all the time, but we don't really process them as normal everyday people because we don't have a reason to go, huh, you know, and then put that somewhere. My job is to put that somewhere. <laughs> and we have lots of buckets of somewheres uh, in our work where we're kind of logging those things. And then, and then over time, as you start to see a kind of collection of them asking, okay, what do these things put together represent? What do they signify? Back to Pierce, you know, what, yep. what are these things kind of telling us about um, the world around us and where it may be headed? So you think about lots of signals make a trend. Um, a number of trends can come together to form a driver or grow to be a driver over time. And that's Thanks. 101. <laughs> yeah, and I really appreciated, uh, and, and I, I hope I don't 
uh, mess it up here if, if I do correct me, but when you're also talking about kind of uh, scenarios and then the first order and an example you gave is like, what would happen like as, as we're, as we're heading towards some autonomous uh, vehicle future, like what, mm-hmm. what might that mean? And, you know, like you, you would, you would describe then, well, who, who needs uh, driver's licenses, right? And like, what does yeah. this mean to ensure like, and all these cascading things that one might think about where like the, these ripples in, in overlapping ecosystems, I just, I mm-hmm. found really fascinating as, as a scenario exercise to step through and, uh, and uh, like, and, and you, you talk about the importance of assumptions, but like, I could see like for a workshop, uh, Let's just make the assumption autonomous autonomous vehicles are real and they're yeah. they're part of our everyday. Now, who needs lice, et cetera? I just I saw that right. as such like a what's powerful the first thing. things that happen? Yeah, yeah. it's it's a, you know that that's that's a tool that's that is so useful. Um, because I mean, and and you know, one of the things I think is really important is that you, is to be able to sort of introduce ways of working that are accessible to anyone in the room that doesn't assume that everyone there working with you is some kind of expert or has, you know, pre-baked opinions about things or sort of knowledge, you know, most people can use their life experience to say, well, actually, if this thing happened, then this is probably one of the outcomes of that. You know, the, the next thing is, well, if no one's driving, no one needs licenses. Well, if no one needs licenses, then we can, you know, change what the DMV does. But here's the, you know, a left turn. Also in the U.S., driver's license is the main channel through which you do organ donation. So if you start removing driver's licenses, you also start taking a critical volume of donor organs out of the system. Right. So or or vote, you, you know, voter registration. Too, right. right. Voter registration. Yep. Gets, yep. You know, so we're going to have to run into that if we start kind of looking at legislation around, you know, motor voter and what's going on in politics yep. in the U.S. If you make it too dependent on a very narrow channel of interaction with the government and that channel goes away, then what are we going to do? So it's my, my job to be worrying about, you know, what, do we, <laughs> how do we register voters in 20 years and who are voters and what are they voting on? Yeah. Um, you know, those kinds of topics. I wish I could remember uh, the exact podcast, but it was, uh, uh, it was about a tech, it was kind of tech and economic future. Uh, but one, the host was talking to a guest and, and said, so uh, with autonomous vehicles, uh, when my car, when, when my car is taking me to the dry cleaner was, was the, the, the frame or statement, but the response was, do you really think with autonomous vehicles, you're going to sit in the car to, to go get your dry cleaning? It was like, we have to re. I mean, we, I, we, we cling to this barely, you know, this, this strong adjacent, I guess, to what we're like, okay, I guess I just won't be. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to go along for the ride all the time. But yeah. Rather than if, if autonomous vehicles really work, why would you even be in the vehicle? And then. Right. You know, what does because it, what my does dry that... cleaners, you know, yeah. a, a one kilometer away from me, why, why would I make that journey? I want right. to eliminate that journey. Yep. Um, yeah. This, I mean, in any given exercise, there's so much to unpack and so many different kind of, um, things to hook on to, but I guess this is the, this is the kind of part of the skill is like figuring out how to cut problems down and rather than just kind of, um, running through it, like you're running through a theme park going, I want to ride that ride and that ride, and that ride. you know, you, you've got some kind of system in play where you're saying, okay, we're actually going to go about this counterclockwise and we're prioritizing these questions first, and then we'll come back. And, and so often a lot of this work is about cutting, cutting really fuzzy, difficult 
hard to frame questions down into digestible pieces that you can then attack in small piece, small bits, and then kind of coming back to reassemble the whole. You you can um, you can get at lots of small maybes where it would be difficult to come up with a really really big answer. Thanks. And um, just, just sorry, I'm throwing more of my mental model out there too to get your kind no, of reaction. Make sure this is how this works. <laughs> we're squared here, but uh, so the space that, uh, like my day job, the the space that I play in, is basically where organizations are struggling because their environment has gone from relatively tame or complicated to complex, and yeah. and they're struggling because they're they're still misdiagnosing. A, a complex problem for a comp so they they tend to double that like kind of almost traditional systems thinking like they're really good at identifying the problem they tend to push the solution lever in the wrong direction and from the human communication side what i see is people who have decades or more of work identity tied into being a problem solver um they they really struggle with almost how to let go Mm -hmm. So that they Absolutely. Can, can move forward. And I was kind of curious on uh, one, if, if, if that holds true with your work and if so, what are some of the things you do? Cause some of the groups you're working, you're working with some of the highest level people in government, in businesses. <laughs> so I guess the short version is how do you get people to check their ego and <laughs> be a little bit more participatory in a group setting? That's a big challenge. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very big challenge. And I think it's one we always go in understanding is there. And, um, you know, the extent to which we kind of counter program sometimes or, or, you know, a, a sort of work with that, with that possibility, you know, coming back to the question about why did we write the book, it was to sort of write some of those things down. So we remember what we're doing, you know, that the, they become such kind of internalized behaviors within a, a kind of tight team that can read each other that um, you realize you need to say it out loud and, and write down for other people. So a, a big part of that getting people synchronized is kind of leveling, leveling the, you know, the sort of landscape inside the room. And that is everything from um, creating tools that don't pri sort of create levels of hierarchy so that everybody around the table has a point of of departure you know for example everybody knows how to play cards um so uh, um, at least some of us can still remember paper cards <laughs> but you know you know that that play dynamic and and you know it's random right it's like what do you choose like the the, the person with 25 years experience in the company is not going to automatically get a better hand than you know the intern um so it's sort of there there are lots of different kind of leveling activities and sort of structures even in the way that you shape um uh the visual canvases and things that people are stepping up to so part of it's kind of in the um in the design of things but a large part of it is in the um the role modeling and in the sort of the tone with which you walk into a room i think you have to have a huge amount of humility we have a lot of experience and we have a lot of domain knowledge and kind of things we've picked up over the years but we don't necessarily know the answer to the to the problem set any better than anyone in the room does but we may be better at um, kind of orchestrating the conversation and you know drawing things out and making connections between things that they're either unable to see or um, don't want to connect the dots in. Um, so a, a good part of our work is in 
um, making sure that we neutralize that environment as we come into it because and, and it still happens all the time you walk in and you're like okay these three people you know i can tell by their body language and by their posture and by you know, all of the run-up to this session or this piece of work that they are skeptical about what's going on here and whether they're skeptical or not they're still involved and we have to engage you know and then other people who are like dying to say something but have never been asked you know and how do you kind of bring them into the picture as well and and then mix those inputs in ways that blend you know what people have to kind of bring to the issue without um uh so everybody kind of leaves you know feeling like they've had something to say and without kind of calling anyone out and that and that gets even more difficult when you change you know cultures when you're working we've worked a lot in the gulf and middle east and there's a very different dynamic there um you know different levels of respect about opinions and information a lot of subtext um you know a lot of things that aren't being said in the room things that we can do they can't do um things we can say they can't say and so sometimes it's our job as well is to kind of be the ones you know madeline would tell you this madeline ashby who i wrote the book with you know that, that we're often the, the i won't say expendable ones but we're the ones who can can carry some of the things that other people can't right and that's an important role yeah, the the culture component is to me is really interesting when, you, especially when you're talking about like even uh, like certain elements of the middle Middle East versus maybe kind of uh, American culture with just roles, even roles of gender and who and, and uh, who who can say what in a room and uh, you know like what does it what does it mean to defer to a leader you know like from a respect perspective or. Um, I'm thinking about the the broad stroke example of uh, the Korean pilots, right? When there was error a few years, I mean, I think it was a couple decades ago now, but like mm -hmm. dissecting the communication where, they were, you know, the co-pilot is basically trying to talk to the pilot in a way to prompt them to realize that they're going to crash, but can't say what he's doing is going to crash the plane, right? And yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that yeah. language dance, but if you had two, and again, broad stroke, if you had two American pilots, one could just say, hey... <laughs> Yeah, we're about to yeah. get a mountain. <laughs> right, right, and and then that becomes even trickier on a daily basis. When I mean, we're fortunate enough that we're working across cultures daily, and so you know, right now, Silicon Valley, London, Singapore, you know, that's three very different cultures with very with, with different professional futures cultures with different approaches to problem solving with different ways of sharing information. Um, and we're constantly kind of shifting, you know, swinging back and forth between them. And I think that's kind of helped us refine how we do what we do. Um, and again, made it all the more important to kind of document it because nobody teaches this stuff. Um, I, I know Madeline Ashby, my co-author and colleague from when she was, I was actually, I lectured in her uh, graduate program in Toronto. And, you know, we used to say, like, nobody in that program to, or, or any of these programs really tells you what it's going to be like when you're in the room and the door is shut behind you and you actually have to work with live humans and a real problem. All of the methodology stuff goes out the door. Right. You know, it, and, and you got to know what that, um, yeah, how to kind of respond to situations 
in that. So we talk about the book as being a kind of practical, tactical guide. It's a kind of, you know, scout handbook or cookbook or, you know, more than uh, what's going to happen, or you have to sort of use our delicate um, methodologies. You know, it's kind of like, here's the problem you might run into, and here's a way to think about it. So... <laughs> Yeah, I really, I, I really enjoyed the the book, and um, I remember when I just looked at the at the I was looking at the cover, and then you know saw your name, and then saw Madeline's name, and so part part of my process is always then I, I look at who are these people, what's their perspective, and I I just found it fascinating too that Madeline is a science fiction writer, and um, so one because one of the things like a space that I'm playing in from kind of innovation and design is uh, just. I get in some places might call them diegetic prototypes, but also the power of narrative on how stories can be a really inexpensive prototype, right? We don't have to mm -hmm. build like an Epcot center or world of tomorrow to really start to even talk about things and, and what might it provoke. But also on a science fiction side, I don't know if this is true or if you and Madeline have these conversations, but sometimes when we look at works of science fiction is Really, you're you're thinking of a world in the future, and, and like like cer these certain tropes still hold, right? Yeah, and yeah. Sometimes when you, it feels like it, sometimes we watch episodes of Star Trek, and you're like, oh, <laughs> then yeah. you're still clinging to that. But I'm just kind of curious on all those fronts. Sure. I'm sorry, there's, there's no really no, it's, no question in there. Just a lot of hand fisted <laughs> statements. No, no, no. It's I mean, it's it, you know, it's it's a it's an interesting thing. I mean, we as a group are, so we're a partnership um, between myself and, and my partner, Susan Cox Smith, who as a, as a designer, a print designer by trade, by, by kind of training originally, but it's come through a lot of other um, sort of pathways of work through, you know, digital education and, um, you know, fine art appraisal, lots of different things where you had a kind of eye that was operating and sense making in a different way than I, I have. Madeline, you know, comes from a narrative background, but also has a history degree like I do, kind of going to the back to the basis. Um, you know, some of our other colleagues have varying kind of uh, design applications, you know, in their background. So we're intentionally a mixed bag. And Madeline and I probably kind of are the two that are more on the narrative side than the, than the, um, the kind of material side and uh we try to stay away from conversations about genre uh because when we get down in those weeds um you know we, we we get iffy with each other but um i think we both largely understand the power of language to kind of construct and and you know illuminate possibility and so you can use it in a lot of different ways we, we run a master class called strategic story forms which tries to break that down and sort of think about how do you use something like and I generally stay away from science fiction and talk about speculative fiction because I don't think it has to be tied to technology in any way. Um, but we talk about how do you use speculative fiction on the one hand, which is a kind of unstructured or semi-structured, um, you know, approach to narrative and things like scenarios, which are logic driven um, in various flavors, but there's a sort of system to them the structured and unstructured modes of communication to um, to kind of lift and be a platform to new insights and kind of data and research that you've done in such a way that you can tell a story that engages someone else in a, a kind of thick idea about the future, um, you know, that, that dimensionalizes it and engages them and asks them to make certain judgments. 
on certain decisions. Um, and I think that's kind of how we look at this. And we actually set that or created that masterclass last year at the end of the year, again, looking back post book and thinking, what is it where you and I are really doing? You know, a lot of what we're really doing here is kind of story crafting, but in very particular technical ways to, you know, choosing form and choosing kind of density to get certain things across. In other words, you can't just use the same form over and over again. You know, all futures can't be eliminated by scenarios, nor can they be, you know, solved by um, short fiction. You know, they, they each thing has its place and has a kind of tool or, or uh, a tool, um, kind of efficacy, you know, that you can use. And so, you know, we we talk a lot about narrative. We are constantly kind of picking things apart and exchanging things. We write, we, uh, the rest of us besides Madeline also kind of write fiction on the side and have other kind of document uh, narrative projects that we work on. So it's kind of the thing that we steep in and that we use as our kind of space to play with ideas um, in, in useful ways and find lots of different ways to kind of communicate them. Because it's a it's a powerful storytelling is a powerful tool to reach very very specific audiences. It allows you to kind of narrow cast through noise in some ways. Um, and you know she's told stories before of you know having to write a story for which only like four people were going to read it. You know, as a corporate client commissioned this thing, only four people are going to read this story, and so you know it needs to have a very specific form, um, very specific content you know, but crafted in a way that that required some expertise to get it there. So it's sort of like you think about the movie Inception, you know, you needed to use a certain memory to tell the story in a certain way. It's that kind of thing. It's kind of a, a, a you know, a form of both transmittal, but also Inception that you're bringing people into a set of thoughts. Right. Right. Uh, and uh, with uh, I, I and, and thanks for talking about some of the, the fiction and, and documentary elements. I did see on your bio on on the changes site that that yep. you do explore that um, is, is is there a certain uh, especially on the maybe the documentary side? Are there areas that just you find deeply fascinating and and. That's why you're pursuing them. I'm just kind of curious what project yeah. you might be working on, if you can share. Sure. No, I mean, we, we, we actually, well, one thing we realized a few years ago was that, you know, we have like all of this scrap on the cutting room floor that when we're doing particular projects, we come up with stories, ideas, artifacts, all these things. We, you know, there's a constant act of world building going on and not all of it can actually go into the final product. So, um, but we also found that that was something we did quite smoothly and easily and kind of frequently because it's our work, it's our job. You know, it's like a, a chef, you can still go home and kind of whip up a nice meal. So, um, but so, but you know, to extend that metaphor, we had lots of uneaten sandwiches around the place. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we started kind of carrying that or like using some of that as the sort of seed to, to create longer stories, partly as a way to kind of stay sharp internally but also um and it was a way to engage each other when we weren't being because you, you can't depend you know predict um if anybody's going to come along this year and ask you for a really juicy project um so we started um 
finding different ways to tell stories that kind of jumped off of lots of different starting points, both kind of fictional. Um, you know, we've we've worked on a, um, a kind of multi-season uh, episodic TV pilot um, that tells a very big story in ways that we couldn't necessarily tell professionally and actually talks about futures and kind of the, the, the multi-generational legacy and burden of doing futures work. Um, thinking about our daughter and how hard it is to explain what her parents do, you know, for, as an example. Um, stories about, uh, we've actually got one we're working on that's kind of um, set in a series of uh, kind of free ports around the world um, that sort of looks at the sort of illicit trade in arms and art, um, because that's an area that's of, of personal interest. Um, uh, you know, others were kind of playing with things around kind of future smart cities, but in ways that, that the story doesn't often get told um, to kind of tell how people fit within systems. And so, you know, it's it's a real kind of grab bag of stuff, but it's allowed us to keep practicing our craft, even when it's not um, being called on in ways that I think makes us a lot sharper when, when it is called on. I, I really appreciate that. I mean, one of the things I mean is just uh, I sometimes I go back to more like sports metaphors, but like it's how you keep getting your reps in, right? Is that you're yeah. you you you, you got to keep working this so that those tools, um, whether it's mindset or you know like kind of if if you don't if you don't stretch, you don't do these things, then when you're really called, you're probably going to hurt yourself. <laughs> yeah, completely. And it's like playing the piano, except I can't play the piano, yeah. but it's the, the same way you might sit down for 20 minutes and stretch your fingers and kind of play a few pieces, you know, bits of pieces and work something out in your head. And, and I think, um, it, and once we kind of, you know, did it more intentionally, we started pushing into different formats in different scales. So back to zooming again, um, you know, the first story was a really, really big story that had a lot of things in it. The second story is actually quite um, compact and narrow and linear and fast moving. Um, one is only, only written for audio. Um, and I had a background in radio back when I was in college. And so I've, I've kind of have an interest in evoking soundscapes through narrative. And that story is there to help us kind of flex our skills at using other senses uh, in narrative to, to, to help bring people to a place. Um, and so they've really have become kind of intentional training pitches, you know, where we go over here to the audio pitch for a while and we go over here to kind of the big one and then, you know, the short story one. Uh, and it is kind of like playing keepy uppy, you know, you're, you're, you're passing the ball back and forth. And, um, and luckily, you know, I have a couple of kind of writing partners in this, primarily Susan and um, our kind of ability to ping the ball back and forth throughout, you know, the day of the week and the month helps keep us sharper when we go into other activities. That's great. I love it. Uh, one of the things that I, I uh, check in with guests too is uh, uh, if you ever feel stuck in these creative, elements or your craft like what are what are some of your techniques or tips for getting unstuck those are, are starting to become more intentional i think um we've just had an example of this over the weekend where i thought and it's kind of using a term a term of art from our own work but it's like i actually need to 
and I don't talk to myself this way. I need to red team this script. I actually want to come at it and tear it down from another point of view and build it as if I had the another idea in mind um, and not be the least bit afraid or kind of, um, you know, precious about, oh, I can't kill my darlings. It's like, wipe them all out, you know, <laughs> sweep the, clear the field and let's, let's yeah. start again. And it's, you know, it's a kind of, but that's a scenaric way of thinking. It's, you know, I've been working in scenario A or we've been working in scenario A until we've worked it to death, but why not work on scenario C, which could be completely different and see what that comes out with. So I think being able to tear things down or switch modalities or look at another tool, you know, it, it's often like, how do I kind of change the lens on this completely and come about it, come at it a different way and not just try to keep forcing something. Um, and, you know, being older helps, <laughs> you know, being kind of in our fifties and it's sort of, you know, I don't care anymore. I don't have, you know, I haven't, I don't feel like I have as much to prove. And so I'm perfectly comfortable and incredibly experienced making mistakes in public. And I think that's really, really helpful too, to just be okay with not getting it right. Um, you know, and that's, and kind of relaxing about it a little bit. And that's, that's something of constantly trying to learn, but we, yeah, the tear down and just the rebuild is is a as a frequent phenomenon. I I appreciate that and uh, 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 just recently my my birthday was on uh, Friday and and one of the one of the gifts uh, for my family was was a, a, a red team book it was was just about red teaming. So I I appreciate yeah. that and and then like you said too is the uh, not holding those ideas so precious right and. Uh, I think that's it. It's, you know, this comes back to the kind of multiple possible futures aspect of it. It's all sort of wired into the work, I guess, but it's being able to hold different possibilities in your head at the same time to be able to accept multiple scenarios as being, you know, viable. Um, and, you know, much to my kids dismay, you know, we do this in our own lives, even now it's, you know, well, what if in 18 months we did this and it's completely different? Um, you know, where would that put us? What, what does it expose? What, you know, what new thing would we learn? What risks do we take? Um, does it have to be this way is kind of the mantra, you know, like, does it have to really be this way or could it be otherwise? Yeah, that's, that's funny. I, I know um, uh, from an innovation standpoint, uh, a, a friend of mine, uh, he uses a, a line from, Elon Musk and I, I'm, but if we're not violating the law of physics, it's probably in play, right? Like in, in that, why, why, why does it have to be this way? Or uh, one of the things I, I refer to as organizational folklore, right? It's yes. Like when, yeah. when you, you try to dig into something, uh, well, why is it? Well, it's the way we've always done that. That's as deep as you can get. And it, it always, if, for me, it's always almost uh frustrating kind of answer when you're, that's it's like just everybody set on autopilot, but uh, yeah, and I think that that uh, that willingness or kind of ability to to back up and try going another direction, you can uncover so much there, and it doesn't necessarily require privilege or luxury or resources or anything else. Sometimes it's just yeah, as you say, letting go of that idea and and imagining otherwise, and you know whether it's 
you know, any, what is it? I can't remember the quote, it's late in the day, but it's just sort of, you know, any sufficiently weird, you know, thing is indistinguishable from the future or whatever. It's kind of like, it's going to come out weird either way. So which way, <laughs> you know, which way do we go? And right. I, um, I, I am a cook in most of my non, non-work hours just because I enjoy it and kind of relax, but also, you know, the experimentation with other possibility. And I, I a few years ago, I had the luck of wandering into an exhibition of uh, Ferran Adria, the cook, the chef um, of El Boy in, in Barcelona or in Spain, sort of most famous restaurant in the world. He went away and sort of closed the restaurant and ran an innovation school for a while. But that that approach to kind of breaking everything down to its ingredients and kind of almost molecules and properties and saying, you know, does ice cream have to look like this and taste like this? You know, does um, does this kind of beverage or this combination of, of ingredients really have to be this way? Could we evoke something else? And that's everything from the sort of the sensory experience and chemistry all the way up to the physical structure. You know, can you, and part of it's surprising people and part of it's kind of stretching their craft, but also part of it's just simply breaking down assumptions about what, what, comp, what comprises a meal, an experience, a pairing, a flavor combination, you know, all a social experience. And um, I was teaching just down the road from where this exhibition was and took the students to kind of see all of the maquettes, all of the plates that they would make up, they would use plasticine, different colors and shapes to prototype dishes. And that really seemed to click for people. It's sort of like, I see what we're doing here now. You know, the, the, the trends and all the things sort of stuff we work with and the data is the ingredients. You know, we can make different dishes and serve them in different orders to create different narratives of experience of this particular future. I'm jumping all over the place. No, that, sorry, but. no, that that's awesome. One of the things that is making me smile too, is I'm hearing like almost on deductive reasoning. And like, when you're talking about the components, like uh, just working your brain on a, uh, almost a taxonomy challenge. Okay. What, yeah. so what are the components? What, what does it need to represent this or back to, to signify this? It has to have these properties. Right. And that becomes interesting when you're like, you know, rearranging those too on, on what, what might this mean or what could this be? Or even from uh, one of the things I really like on the on design and innovation side is like from systematic inventive thinking, like one of the, one of the, in the toolbox, like subtraction, like it's just, absolutely what is this if we take this away? Like, and, and, I, I, that's and one he, of the things I talk about. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, to, to, um, in different situations, like what's in that gap? What happens if we take something out of this mixture? There's, there's, you don't always have to be adding something to the future. Sometimes you're actually eliminating or turning down or quieting something. And, um, you know, that's particularly difficult right now because we're kind of going through all of these big phase transitions of things like energy and food and health and transportation and all these kinds of things. And it's sort of like we have to take things away even while we're making new things. Right. And people miss that. They just keep thinking of like, make more, make more, you know, and think, well, actually we have to remove this system while, while we're putting something else in. So you really need to get, get comfortable with subtraction as well as addition. You need to get comfortable with empty as well as full. 
Thank you. Scott, one of the things I try to cover too with guests uh, before we go is just a notion of advice, like either good advice that you've received from a mentor that, you know, kind of, for for me, it's something like you might unpack as you get older, like, oh, that was a pretty elegant payload. But for me, it was like when I was younger, it was that almost seemed nonsensical, but then it seems like a brilliant statement as you get older or a notion of advice too from Austin Cleon, kind of his steal like an artist. He says, uh, when we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self. So if there might've been advice you wish you would have had earlier in your career. Yeah, I think that's probably the the better one because I've I've kind of jumped around so much. I've, I've, I haven't benefited from as many kind of mentors as I probably would have liked to have had in, in life. I had to kind of hack a lot of stuff myself. Um, which explains being 15 writing a book instead of 30. Um, but I think the, um, yeah, the sort of don't be afraid to screw up piece is really important. Uh, and not even screwing up, it's like don't be afraid to just kind of experiment and stick with it. Um, you know, th- there you can experiment and be consistent at the same time if your consistency is experimentation. You know, so I think that kind of, you know, th- those issues around, um, yeah, leaving space to to try new things. Um, don't be absolutely sure. Uh, I think there's a lot of, you know, um, posturing around certainty and, you know, you're wrong and I'm right and this is absolutely this way and not that way. You know, the, the world's a very ambiguous and fluid place and, um, you know, kind of chaining yourself to certainty you know, or, or picking a hill to die on too early is not a great practice. So I think kind of maintaining, um, yeah, there was a guy that, that used to work with a guy that I used to work with who would always say, like, you know, maintain an athletic posture. Um, and my partner, Susan, kind of uses that a lot. It's like, how do you kind of stay on your toes and ready to shift and ready to change direction? You know, maintain a kind of balance where you can you can move to the left or to the right, you know, you can go up or down. Um, and uh, that runs counter to the need to sort of signal stability and certainty all the time. I think you've got to be able to sort of, you know, be ready to move and, and, and go like launch in a different direction at, at all times. That's my, that's my probably most important advice. Thank you. I really, really appreciate that. And I want to thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It was an absolute pleasure to to have you here. And uh, from a nerd perspective, I just <laughs> really loved the book. So being able to talk to the author is always exciting. Amazing. Well, no, it's it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Matt. And um, I appreciate that it's um, that you found it useful. And uh, yeah, I hope we run into each other again in person sometime. Hey, wait, before you go, if you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out some previous episodes related to the future, innovation, and sense-making. So those episodes are uh, episode three with Nick Scappatici, episode 73 with Dan Klein, episode 36 with Mike Maddock, episode 39 with Michelle Williams, and episode 78 with Abby Covert. And if you enjoyed these episodes, please consider leaving a positive review and rating on Apple's podcast platform. It would really help me out. Thanks so much. Take care.